Oh, man, it makes me laugh sometimes. I feel like I come in um, just ready to go. Like I can see sound some morning, not really, but like I feel like it, like I'm just charged up, ready to go. And sometimes you guys are just like, hey, good to see you. But this morning, I feel like y'all are ready to go, and it's kind of giving me some life. I love it. Well, hey, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Marcus Donaldson. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to City Church. This is a place where everyone is welcome because no one is perfect. If you didn't hear that the first time, you heard it now. Now, we can welcome everyone um, because no one is perfect because we worship the one who is perfect, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. And we've been in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans for several months now. Um, probably half a year now. I'm not, I don't remember exactly when we started, um, but we've been here for a long time. We've made it to uh, Romans chapter 8, and if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Romans 8. We'll read verses 31 through 39, and there's no way that I can get you to wrap your arms around everything that we've covered over the last six or so months or however many months we've been studying this letter. However, what I will say is that there's a lot here, and we're coming to the end of, of this section of Paul's letter here at the end of chapter 8. So everything that Paul has covered, in really in uh, Romans 5 to chapter 8, this section that we've been in, it's coming to a glorious conclusion. And I say glorious conclusion because we'll see as we go through this passage. But before we do, I want to just share a story. And, and I want to share it for a purpose. I've been thinking about it all week, haven't really... Um, thought about how to share it, but I want to share it because I want it to get out there because it's concerning me. It's been eating at me for probably the better part of a month now, but a few uh, guys, me, Tucker, Travis, uh, we were serving down at the food bank as part of the men's ministry. Every Monday, if you're a man, get involved. Um, we were serving down there at the food bank, and you know, the night's going really well. You know, it's like like I felt like I ran a marathon after. There was no shortage of people, um, and it was great. We got to pray with some folks. We got to talk to some, uh, some folks. Uh, really good time, and just serve people. And this one young man, you know, of course it's me. Like I find the, I get the one, you know. He's like, hey, can I ask you a question? And I'm like, yeah, go ahead, shoot. Like, let's do this. This is what I've been waiting for. This is what I'm here for. And he's like, what... Um, what does this church believe about uh, the eternal security of believers or, or once saved, always saved? And I was like, well, first of all, this isn't a church. It's a group of churches. And I would, I can confidently say that I believe that all of the churches here would teach that once a believer is saved, they are always saved. Every born again believer cannot lose their salvation. And we start going through um, the preservation of the saints. And, and so I mean, there are like some key indicators which side you fall on this spectrum. And I know we're about to nerd out, and I know that's not where you want to go this morning, but, but it's important, right? He started saying things like free will, lose, decision, and how far you can go. Like, and, and that tells me where you're leaning, right? That tells me where you're going theologically. And, and so I asked um, if he belonged to a certain theological camp. I won't say it right now because it's not helpful, However, he was like, no, I don't, I'm, I believe the Bible. 
It's like, well, we must be reading two different versions or something then because I don't see anywhere where it says that you can lose your salvation. And naturally, he brought up passages like Hebrews 6 um, and some other difficult passages to interpret. But I want to just share this confidently and we can have a conversation with it afterwards if you fall into the same camp that says that you can lose your salvation, that nothing in Scripture, everything that uh, Scripture teaches, models, and assumes does not indicate, suggest, hint at, or anything else that a a genuine born-again believer can lose their salvation. Right? What God has started, he will see to uh, to the day of completion in Christ Jesus. Right? What God has begun... Right, and we'll see that this morning. But there are so many. There are there are people here this morning. There are people in the world. I mean, I talk about YouTube and TikTok theologians all the time. This teaching is growing, and it's increasingly prevalent that people, uh, believers, are are receiving this this heretical doctrine that says that you can lose your salvation. Right? If if you could lose it, it wouldn't be from God. All right, so we just need to understand that before we go ahead. And I'm sorry if it was a little off and choppy. My wife, Ariel, she's been gone all week, um, and I haven't slept well all week. Now, I don't know if I would correlate those two things, but some of y'all might. Um, And it may be related. However, um, I slept like, like a baby last night. I mean, you seen? have you seen a NyQuil commercial? That's how I slept. Like, it was so good. And now my mind is like all over the place, resetting. So anyways, Romans 8, 31 through 39. If you're there, say amen, and we'll read together. Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would illuminate your word to us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might understand it and that we could apply it rightly that we could have the assurance that your word gives us that your spirit gives us that your son bought for us because i'm sure of this lord that it will completely change the way that we walk in this world so lord we pray god that you would do this work in us so that we could glorify you in all that we say and do and all god's people said Amen. So Paul begins there in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? These things, what are these things? Well, I think that 
There are some, well, I know this, there are some who say that it's just what he's talking about here in Romans 8, and we've covered a lot here in Romans 8, and that is convincing. There are others who say that it covers everything in this section, Romans 5, to here in Romans 8, and there are some that say that it's everything to this point in the entire letter. Now, I think that there are convincing arguments for all of them, but here's what I think that we've covered in Romans 5, uh, Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8. Right, He's been unfolding relentlessly the good news of the gospel and really the, the application of redemption. And, and so here's what he's shown us so far, that we are justified before God if you're in Christ. You're reconciled to God if you're in Christ. You enjoy peace with God if you're in Christ. You're indwelled by the Spirit of God if you're in Christ. You're not condemned before God if you're in Christ. You've been adopted by God if you're in Christ. You have glorification hope in God if you are in Jesus Christ. You have help in the Spirit of God if you're in Christ, and you are called by God if you're in Christ. And you have the certainty that all things are working together for the good of those who love God if you're in Christ. So there are going to be many who are against us in this life. But ultimately, God is for us. So these things, right, all these things, right, it's like we're trying to hug a redwood tree. Like just that list alone is, it's like I, have, I don't have enough fingers and toes, right? And, and we, we're trying to understand that. Then so we've been walking through this slowly, but there is so much here. But ultimately, what he's trying to get us to understand in this passage is that we cannot, if you are in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation, right? You're never out of the will of God. You're not falling away from grace. Amen, somebody? Do we see that too? Okay. If God is for us, who can be against us? And you're like, well, Marcus, it says if God is for us. Well, yeah, in the Greek, the participle, it's conditional, which means it really indicates that it's a, it's a, it's already something that's already been filled or fulfilled, excuse me. It's already been done. It's already been accomplished. So it, it could probably uh, more closely read sense or because. Sense or because God is for us who can be against us. Not if. So don't read it in the way that we tend to read ifs. Like it's some uh, unfulfilled condition. No, this is very much fulfilled. And it's kind of hard to see that in English, but you see it very clearly in Greek. But the, the obvious Im implication here is that no one can rob us of salvation. No one can rob a genuine believer of salvation. No one can take your salvation, not even you. Now, hear what I said, because I think some of us missed it. No one can take your salvation, not even you. If you are genuinely in Christ, right? If you have uh, repent to turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin, you are saved. And he will finish his work in you to your glorification, right? When you're standing before him in heaven, right? There are so many of us, and, and I fall into this trap too. When you think about the coming judgment and you're like, if God is for me, who could be against me? If you think you're going to stand before the Lord in judgment and you're going to be condemned. That's why passages like Matthew 7, uh, you know, I did not know you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's why these passages are scary. They're, they should shake us to the core. I'm not saying that, that we should, you know, just go into this milky version of Christianity where, where it's all grace and we just live however we want. We act like the Lord doesn't have commands, that he doesn't have standards that we should desire to live to. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is if you are in Christ Jesus, no one can snatch your salvation. No one can take away your salvation, not even you.
So if you're in Christ, you should look to judgment. You should look to that last day with hope, with confidence that you will not be eternally condemned, but you will be rewarded and, and, and spend eternity in the presence of the one who bled and died for you. Now, what Paul does here is he uses an argument from the greater to the lesser. And we do this all the time. If you are um, an arguer like me, you just live for debate, then you probably do this very often. You go from the, the greater thing to the lesser thing. And that's exactly what he does. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The hard thing, the, the greater thing. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the harder thing. God did the harder thing to accomplish your salvation. The only thing that could accomplish your salvation. Amen? Sending his son Jesus to die in your place. And here's what the theologian John Murray, here's how he sums it up. He says, quote, sparing refers to suffering inflicted. Parents spare their children when they do not inflict the full measure of chastisement due. Judges spare criminals when they do not pronounce a sentence, of, a sentence commensurate with the crime committed. By way of contrast, this is not what God the Father did. He did not withhold or lighten one whit of the full toll of judgment executed upon his well-beloved and only begotten son. There was no alleviation of the stroke, for it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, Isaiah 53, 10. There was no mitigation. Judgment was dispensed upon the sun in its unrelieved intensity, end quote. God the Father crushed the sun on, on the cross, pulled out or poured out his, the entire weight of his wrath on the sun on the cross. This is how serious God is against sin, and you think that he's going to let you slide. This is how serious he is. He poured out his wrath on the son, but this is how glorious, this is how gracious, this is how merciful he is. Jesus died in your place if you're in Christ. He took the place, he took the punishment that you deserve on the cross. That's what we just sung, isn't it? That's the harder thing. And if God could accomplish the harder thing, then we can rest assured that he will certainly accomplish the lesser or the easier thing. And that's what Paul is saying. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There we go. There's the super jumbo jet that I've been waiting for. No, that's not what all things refers to. No, all things, it refers to all things necessary to conform us to the image and likeness of his son, like we just read about in verses 29 and 30. Amen? Notice here that Paul, his response is grounded in history. It's not in feeling or like analogy or anything else. Like, no, no, no. It's grounded in history. Something happened in space and time on the cross. So if, if you are ever doubting, right, if you are in Christ and you're ever doubting your salvation, if you're ever doubting um, your, if, if God is going to be gracious to you on that last day, you don't look to YouTube. You don't look to TikTok. You don't look to your husband, your wife, your friends, your neighbors. No, you look to the cross. 
yeah, yeah, amen. And then we're sitting there doubting the mess out of ourselves. And we don't open this. This has more dust on it than uh, than our high school baseball awards. Or maybe that's just me. But I'm, I'm saying this not only because I experience this, but because I know many of us in this room do. We struggle with sin and doubt and guilt and shame and pain and regret. And we ignore the one thing to give us that assurance. Right? We isolate ourselves from God, the, the people of God. We isolate ourselves from community. We, we make all of these excuses. We busy ourselves with things and we spend most of our time on screens and we ignore what God has done in space and time in history. The one thing that gives us the assurance that God has dealt with our sin, past, present, and future. He's dealt with it. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished, right? So the cross is the believer's ongoing assurance. It's not just some cool thing that we wear around our neck. So God's work on Calvary in God the Son is the only thing that we need. To remind us, the only assurance that we need of his continued grace towards us now and forever. Right, so how could it be possible, greater or lesser, how could it be possible that God would, if if we were sinners, what does Romans 5, 8 say? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Here we are. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't while you were great. It wasn't while you were perfect. It wasn't when you were coming together. No, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were sinner, like you were the worst of the worst. And God showed his love for you in that Christ died for you. So how will he then not give you all things if he loved you in that condition? If he was gracious to you in that condition? If he was merciful to you in that condition? How would he do less for his beloved children than he would for his enemies? How, how, like, I don't know what it's like in your brain, but man, I can go down a rabbit hole and stay down there and it's painful and it's miserable. It, It is not a good place to be. So I don't know about you. Anyways, we'll, we'll keep moving on. This right here, though. Right, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. This is a reminder. It's an echo of something. And we got to go all the way back to Genesis for that. Genesis 22. There's a story of a father named Abraham. Y'all have heard of him, amen? And his son named... Y- y'all could... The, the, the son of promise. Good question. See, that's a great question. The son of promise, Isaac. <laughs> that is a really good question. Way to go. Um, Abraham and Isaac. What we see there is a foreshadowing. It, it's, a, it's a picture of what God the Father will do to God the Son, and God the Son will willingly do. Abraham takes his son Isaac up on top of a mountain to be sacrificed as God commanded. And before he sacrifices him, God spares him and provides a sacrifice for them. Abraham, the the willing father, and Isaac, the willing son uh, to be sacrificed. It's a picture, but the difference is, right, we're comparing right now. Now we have to contrast. God spared Isaac. God didn't spare his son. Now he crushed him on the cross. There was no sparing 
for God the Son, and He did this for your redemption. So in verse 33, Paul then, he says, who can bring charge against us? And he says, who shall bring charge, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Sometimes our own hearts will charge us, won't they? 1 John 3.20 says that. Satan continually charges God's elect. Right? Continually. Not sometimes, not just when you feel like you're doing pretty bad or poorly or whatever the case may be, but continually. Revelations 12.10, or excuse me, Revelation, it's singular. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brothers and says that he accuses them day and night before our God. Look at the book of Job with me. Job 1, verses 8 through 11. And we see Satan clearly in this role. Verse 8 says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Why Satan is essentially saying, why do you think Job is worshiping you? Why do you think that he's faithful? Why do you think that he's following you? It's not out of fear or reverence for the Lord. It's because he has an easy life. Look at this. You've done nothing but blessed him. Accusation, right? It's false belief, it's false reverence, it's false worship is what Satan's accusing Job of. Now what we see throughout the book of Job is that Job, he, he did uh, question God's wisdom and he was divinely rebuked for that in chapters 38 through 41, but he was repented and forgiving, but what we, or forgiven, excuse me, but what we see uh, from beginning to end is God calls Job one thing, Two words, but one thing. Repeatedly. What does he call him? My, my servant. Repeatedly. From beginning to end, he calls him my servant. Right? So although Job's faith wasn't perfect, it was genuine. It was real. Right? And so even though God uh, is, is listening to Satan's accusations of Job and calling him all these things, and even though God the Father allowed Job to, or allowed Satan to, tempt Job, to crush Job, do any, everything essentially, but kill him. What we see is that his, his faith was genuine, even though it wasn't perfect. Because we know, and what we see there is that God preserves the faith of those who are in him. God protects the faith of those who are in him. It's not, this is where, this is where that, that idea that you can lose salvation comes from. If you think that you came to God on your own power and strength, then you think you can walk away from it on your own power and strength. This is why I'm so serious about, about this idea of, uh, well, let's just keep moving on. That's a very hard rabbit hole to get out of. Anyway, Satan, the accuser, we see this in Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. In verse 1, he says, Then he, that is the angel, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan's doing what? 
accusing him. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is it not that... Uh, is it not this a brand plucked from the fire? Right, Joshua, he's clothed with filthy garments. That's he's still living uh, with sin, uh, still living in his sinful flesh, like you and I. And one of the Lord's redeemed, uh, even though he was one of the Lord's redeemed. Man, told you I slept way too well. He was still beyond. Satan's power to destroy or discredit. We see this again in Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but behold, I have prayed for you, right? The Lord is not allowing Satan to take on Simon, that is Peter. So who is to condemn us? Our hearts are going to try. Satan is continually trying. But still in verse 34, Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed in interceding for us? What we see here is four realities uh, that protect our salvation in Christ Jesus. First, he says that Christ Jesus died. And we've already talked about this, but Jesus' death, in that he took the full penalty for our sins upon himself. In his death, he bore the condemnation that you and I deserve. I don't know if you know that he bore the full weight of that, past, present, and future. And we are forever freed from that. That's what we covered in verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. We've covered it. We've, we've been there. The second thing is that Christ was raised from the dead, proving victory over sin and its supreme penalty, death. Right? The fact that, that Jesus rose from the grave is important, isn't it? It's important. It proves that Jesus was who he says he was and did what he said that he did. It proves that God the Father accepted the Son's sacrifice. It proves, it vindicates every claim that he ever made and exactly what he came to do. If we doubt that Jesus rose from the grave, we have a serious problem. Because if he didn't, then he's just a normal man. No, hear me. If he didn't, if he didn't rise from the grave, which I believe he did, then he's just a normal man. I'm going to die. I'm not going to rise from three days. I'm not going to call my shot and do it. No, Jesus did. And he did exactly what he said that he did on the cross, and he proved it through rising from the grave. Paul said this earlier in the, in the letter, that Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification in Romans 4.25. Right? He, his resurrection, it proves, it shows, it demonstrates that he was offered for the full satisfaction for sin that the law demands. Third thing that we see here is that he's at the right hand of God. And what we see in Scripture is that being at the right hand, it's a place of, of power and exaltation. It's a place of glory and majesty and honor. And what we see is that in um, Psalm 110, verse 1, that David foretold of this glorious event when he said this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But the, the writer of Hebrews explains this really well. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. Every, or, and every priest stands 
uh, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time or excuse me, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There were no seats at the temple. There were no seats in the temple because priests were continually making sacrifices. They didn't get to sit down and take a break. Jesus is once and for all sacrifices. He's what? Seated at the right hand of God the Father. His work is done. It's finished. He doesn't need to make any more sacrifices. His work is done. He's waiting to come back and crush sin and death and Satan. And Christ intercedes for us. We saw earlier that the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, excuse me, intercedes for believers. And now we see that Christ the Son is interceding for believers. What is he interceding for? He's saying, no, this one's mine. He's bought. He's paid for. She's a daughter. He's a son. I've made sacrifice for them. They're mine. Satan continually accusing. And you have the best defense attorney in the world for eternity, Christ the Son, saying, no, I've paid their debt. Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 53, verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among, or excuse me, numbered with the transgressors. Man, my goodness, Joe, what did you put in that coffee? Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Again, the writer of Hebrews explains it this way. Hebrews 7.25, Christ is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. This is what the Son is doing until he returns, interceding for you and me. And it's the, a good thing, isn't it? Because I, I don't know about you, but I'll just admit that, that I sin and fall short often. I need the Son's intercession. I need the Spirit's intercession on my behalf. Here's the reality. The, the Roman Catholic Church has taught for a very long time that someone could lose their salvation and fall out of a state of grace. <gasps> Is it just the Roman Catholic Church? No, absolutely not. No, there are many evangelical churches who wrongly teach that a believer can lose their salvation, that someone who is in Christ can fall out of grace, fall out of God's will, that, that, they, could start, um, that they could start their walk with the Lord and then somehow by some decision that they make or some circumstance that they just fall away from grace. And when you trace this, like, this development throughout history, what you see is that the standards change, Right. The things that the Roman Catholic Church said 300 years ago would cause somebody to lose their salvation is not the same things that they would say that cause somebody to lose their salvation now. I just think that's interesting and it's something to note. But you and I know because we've read Romans 8, 31 through 39, we know that a believer cannot lose their salvation. So when we see this on TikTok, when we see this on YouTube, when we read and talk to our friends and neighbors about somebody losing their salvation, we can confidently say, we can rest assured when our hearts condemn us, when Satan accuses us, even though these things may not be false, we cannot lose our salvation if we are truly in Christ. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to squirm in our seats. 
But let's not pretend that this teaching isn't prevalent. Here's what I've been getting to. John 10, 28 and 29. I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Not you, not Satan, not some unfortunate event. No one. We see another who, right? Another who can separate us in verses 35 through 39. And that word um, who in the Greek, it, it can also be translated what. And I think that that's a better translation um, than who here, only because what we see are a bunch of inanimate situations, right? It, it's, not, it, it's not like uh, people that Paul is referring to here. So when we see who right there at the beginning of verse 35, I think that it might be a little bit better to read it as what. He says, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? None of those are people. Right? So now people do some of these things, but these things are not people. Anyways, moving on. Because God is for us, we will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Because God is for us, we will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what we see here in 35 are a bunch of potential separators. These are all the things that uh, the people that he's writing to in Rome, the believers living in Rome, would have thought could have separated them. And just like it is today that this teaching, it was prevalent that somebody can lose their salvation. So what are the things that he mentions? Well, he says tribulation and distress. Can outward affliction, I want you to answer this, and we're going to do it together. Let's practice this. Can outward affliction or inward distress separate us from Christ's love? Great answer. You got it right. What about persecution? What about famine or nakedness? Y'all are crushing it. Y'all are absolutely crushing it. Now, just a side note, famine or distress, right? Or excuse me, famine or nakedness. That's not referring to like actually being hungry and actually running around naked like a crazy person. No, it's talking about not being able to provide, provide, excuse me, for your basic necessities, being destitute, being in a bad situation, not being well off, right? You can't feed yourself. You can't clothe yourself adequately. It's not talking about literal running around naked like a crazy person. Anyways, or anyways, what about danger? All right, let's get back to the last one. What about the sword? No, that's what Paul is saying, right? It's simple. I don't need to, to break it down piece by piece by piece. What he, he's, he's showing us that there's nothing that can separate us, right? He's showing us that, that whatever it is that we face, it cannot take us away from Christ's love for us. It cannot take away our salvation. That's what he's trying to show us. So he cites Psalm 44, 22 from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And he says, as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Right? This particular song, it's about the su psalm. It's about the suffering of God's people. And his point is this, that Christian suffering is par for the course. It's par for the course. We shouldn't be surprised by it. 
right? So these teachers who, who, who tell you that it, like God only desires you to be happy, wealthy, and healthy, right? This gospel, this, this teaching that sounds so good, that tickles the ears, that if you just have enough faith, you'll be healthy. If you have enough faith, you'll be wealthy. And if you have enough faith, you'll be happy. That is garbage. It is garbage and it is killing you. Every time you hear it, every time you believe the lie, it is garbage. Paul wants us to understand that like suffering is par for the course. It, it's like we shouldn't be surprised by it. So if you are suffering, whether it be any of these things that he's listed, persecution, like physical or social, whether it be in your family or at work or in some nation far, far away from here, what he wants you to know, don't be surprised by it. It's par for the course. In verse 37, he answers the question directly. He says, no. See, y'all had the answer the whole time. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And, and it's, you know, that that's like a man, we should make a, a church CD or a worship song, more than conquerors, a, a Christian band, more than conquerors. And we're just conquerors and everything, conquerors, conquerors. No, sometimes you and I, sometimes we get conquered by things, don't we? By temptation, by our greed, by our selfishness, by our doubt, by our lack of faith. No, we get conquered by a lot of things. But the reason that Paul can say that we are more than conquerors is because of what he said in verse 28, that God is working everything for our good. That means ultimately you're not going to lose. But notice who you are conquerors through. Verse 37, look, open your Bible. Don't look at the screen. Open your Bible. Uh-oh, got to pull them back out. Dang it. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You're not a conqueror in yourself. You're going to be conquered in yourself. But through him who loved us, we are more than conquerors. We can rest assured that he's working all things for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. That's how we are more than conquerors. That's how we are victors in the end. Now in verses 38 and 39, Paul closes with the final celebration of God's love. He begins uh, with his own assurance of God's love in Christ, what we see is this. I am certain, for I am sure, not I feel, not I think, not it may, but I am sure, certain, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's sure of this. He's sure of it. And it's not one of those things, right? It's like there's somebody in here who's like, well, what about this? What about this one thing that I don't think Paul has listed very explicitly? What about this? This is a gray area. No, it's not. No, this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. Right, Paul didn't know about you know the accessibility of of alcohol being on everything, every corner, 
or, or fentanyl being, you know, just all over the place or drugs. And it, like, he, I'm, I'm saying like he, he wasn't aware of all these things, but this is still God's word. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list. He's covering everything that he can think of in a short amount of time that the spirit is inspiring him to write. Now I mentioned that and I'd make a kind of a point on that only because we could read this and, and think that we are somehow living in this exclusion, right? That we somehow don't fit into this with this one situation. No, like there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Paul is sure of this. So four things that this passage should lead us to do. It should, it should allow us, uh, it should lead us to, to worship it should lead us to worship God. It should lift us from despair. It should show us that what unites us is immensely diverse, right? It should show us that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, and no matter what we, uh, that we suffer with and from, that we have a God who loves us, that will never give us up or let us go, no matter what we struggle with. So we should support one another like that. And that should embolden our mission. We should live on mission knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now there are some in here who may have very good reason to doubt their salvation because they were never saved. But the truth is no different for you. That one day in space, time, and history, God sent his son to die the death that you deserved after living the life that you should have lived. He took your place on the cross so that you would be forgiven of your sin, past, present, and future for eternity. And to receive that on your behalf, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sin and receive the gift of eternal life. That's it. So if you're doubting, you don't have to doubt this morning. Turn from your sin and believe in him and allow these truths to, to uh, solidify your heart, give you all the assurance that you could ever need in this life.